Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to another episode of the Raider Roots Podcast. I am T3, your host, and today we will be looking at the year 1995. This was a year of transition for the Raiders. The most obvious and league-shaking change was the return to Oakland. The deal marked the first time in professional sports history that a team left the city and then moved back. Al Davis had commented that the Raiders were fortunate to have several standard of excellence stadium opportunities for the future in both Oakland and Los Angeles, but also that the inadequate stadia in the Los Angeles area for the interim years influenced our decision. Davis had soured on Los Angeles after promises made to renovate the Coliseum, including luxury boxes that were intended to generate nearly $4 million a year, never materialized. Hollywood Park emerged as another potential option to keep the team within the L.A. market, but Al had grown impatient and the city of Oakland was clamoring to get their team back. Two things that many people agree on is that, one, Al Davis never wanted to move out of Oakland in the first place, and two, the city of Los Angeles was foolish to let the Raiders get out of L.A. with the country's second-largest TV market at its disposal. But the deal was done. Many of the players were eager to make the move to Oakland. Defensive end Nolan Harrison, who was in junior high school when the team moved from Oakland to Los Angeles, supported the team's move. We are all welcoming, he said. L.A., this is a glitter town. You've got to be a blockbuster hit, same as a movie. If they don't think it's a great movie, they won't go see it. I guess we're not a blockbuster, so I guess we'll take our show somewhere else. Maybe Al Davis was thinking the same thing. Not wanting to roll out the same show to the people in Oakland, Al felt a change needed to be made in the coaching ranks, so he turned to someone already within the Raider organization offensive line coach Mike White, because he had become impatient with the lack of overall organizational success under the leadership of Art Shell. White had been with the Raiders for five years, serving as quarterback's coach and then as offensive line coach in 1994, prior to his promotion to the head coaching spot. A large part of that hiring came on the strong recommendation from former 49ers head coach and close friend Bill Walsh. Davis hired Walsh to be on his coaching staff way back in 1966, and Walsh credited Davis with laying a foundation for his career as an offensive genius. Now, Davis wanted to transform White into his next great coaching success story, and most importantly, he was coming from inside the Raiders' building. Others, however, believe that Al just wanted to start with a clean slate as the team returned to its old stomping ground in 1995. White brought in Joe Bugle to be his offensive coordinator. One of his strengths was establishing and maintaining solid offensive lines, and he had to do that right away when starting center Don Mosbar was lost during the preseason, and 10-year veteran Dan Turk had to step in. 
He also brought in hard-running Derek Fenner from Cincinnati to bring some more variety to the offense. A shorter passing game was installed as well, using the running backs and the tight ends and short crossing routes by the speedy wideouts and utilizing, of course, Tim Brown. As far as any major changes were concerned, quarterback was not the issue going in. Jeff Hostetler was returning for his third season with the Raiders, and he was coming off his only career Pro Bowl selection after leading the Silver and Black to a 9-7 record in 1994. In the backfield, Harvey Williams returned for his second year with the Raiders, joined by the dynamic first-round pick Napoleon Kaufman. All-Pro wideout Tim Brown and the speedy Rocket Ismail gave the Raiders big play capability all across the board. On defense, the key offseason acquisition was free agent defensive end Pat Swilling. Swilling came from Detroit and ended up playing for the Raiders in 1995, 1996, and 1998. In his first season with the Silver and Black, he led the team in sacks from his right end position with 13. He and his tag team partner on the other end of the line, Anthony Smith, combined for 20 sacks in 1995. Swilling also forced five fumbles during the season. The East Bay was thrilled with the return of its beloved Raiders. Over 50,000 fans showed up for the home opener against division rival and defending AFC champion San Diego. Rookie Napoleon Kaufman received the opening kickoff and took it out to the 25. From there, the Raiders, under Hostetler, picked up two first downs and pushed the ball all the way up to midfield before having to punt. The defense then came on and limited the Chargers to six offensive plays and allowed the visitors to get to their own 31. A 53-yard punt by Darren Bennett pinned the Raiders back at their own 16. After a first down run was stuffed and second down run only picked up four, Hostetler was sacked on third down and fumbled the ball. The Raiders recovered, but Jeff Gossett had to punt the ball from his own end zone. The Chargers took over at midfield and quickly advanced to the Raider 35. Then, after an incomplete pass and a forced fumble, which San Diego got back, quarterback Stan Humphreys threw a pass toward the end zone, which Eddie Anderson picked off at the one, snuffing out the drive. The Raiders took over at their own one-yard line. They proceeded to march all the way down the field, 99 yards, running 14 plays and consuming 8.52 off the play clock, moving from the first quarter into the second, then culminating in a five-yard touchdown reception by Tim Brown. Fittingly, the first point scored back in the old Alameda Coliseum, and all against their division rivals, which couldn't have made the fans happier. San Diego got the ball back, went all the way down to the Oakland 25 in just nine plays, but then missed a 42-yard field goal. After a quick three and out by the Raiders, the Chargers had another long drive, this one covering 62 yards, and this time making it into the end zone on a 39-yard touchdown pass from Stan Humphreys to Sean Jefferson. 7-7 was the halftime score, but the Raiders received some bad news and that starting offensive lineman Gerald Perry was lost with a broken forearm. In the second half, the Raider defense generated a turnover on the first play from scrimmage as Pat Swilling forced a fumble and Jerry Ball recovered at the San Diego 33. The result was a Cole Ford field goal, and the score was 10-7 Raiders. After a couple of possession exchanges between the two teams, The Raiders put together another scoring drive as the third quarter was winding down and the rookie Kaufman then broke off on a 16-yard scamper for his first touchdown as a Raider, pushing the lead to 17-7. The defense for the Raiders then took over and shut down the Chargers, 
snuffing out two fourth down attempts in the process. The home fans went home happy, and football was back in Oakland, and it was winning football. The second game of the year for the Raiders was an East Coast trip to the nation's capital. Against the Redskins, the Raiders' offense controlled the ball for nearly 35 minutes. The two teams ended up with the exact same total number of yards, 358, and the defense did its job, giving up only two field goals and a safety on a block punt out of the end zone toward the end of the game. The defense also forced three turnovers and picked up two quarterback sacks as the Raiders came into Washington and came away with a 20-8 victory. Game three was against the division rival Kansas City Chiefs as both teams came in undefeated. Even though the Chiefs scored first, the Raiders moved out to a 17-7 lead, which they maintained throughout the end of the third quarter. The Chiefs came back with a touchdown and then added a field goal with just under eight minutes left to play in regulation to tie the score. Then, with the Raiders beginning another drive late, Hostetler threw a pass which was deflected at the line of scrimmage and intercepted. Playing just to set themselves up for a winning field goal, the Chiefs used Marcus Allen to position the ball for Lynn Elliott, their kicker, who came on for a 24-yard chip shot of less than two minutes remaining, but he missed. So the game went into overtime. In the extra period, Kansas City got the ball first. Marcus Allen ran one yard. He then caught a pass and scampered for 20 yards before being hit and fumbling the ball back to the Raiders. Now on their own 38, Napoleon Kaufman advanced it to midfield on two rushing plays. Two more completions to Tim Brown, a run by Kaufman, then a penalty on the Raiders for holding, still had the Raiders in Kansas City territory. Ostetler went back to pass. Despite all the conspiracy theories about the referees deciding games against the Raiders, something strange happened. As Tim Brown was making his way across the middle of the field to take in Hostetler's toss, one of the referees got in Brown's way and disrupted the route. The ball was picked off by KC linebacker James Hasty, who took it all the way back for the score, and Kansas City ended up winning the game in overtime, 23-17. Despite the bitter defeat, the Raiders returned to Oakland and totally took it out on the visiting Philadelphia Eagles. Philly took the opening kickoff and drove the ball all the way down the field to score a touchdown on its opening possession, then added a field goal and another touchdown when Greg Jackson returned a fumble 45 yards. All this happened in the first quarter, and the Eagles were up 17-0. The Raiders had already turned the ball over twice, and it only gained a total of 36 yards in total offense. With only four minutes left in the first quarter, the Raiders began another drive, and then the walls came tumbling down for Philadelphia. The drive culminated in a short field goal and got the Raiders on the board. After a couple of brief exchanges, the Raiders got the ball again, starting at their own 19, with just over 11 minutes left in the half. They proceeded to march all the way down the field, aided by two Eagles penalties, and scored a touchdown, using up only two minutes of clock time. When the Raiders went back out on defense on the first play of the drive, Ricky Waters was hit in the backfield, fumbled the ball, and the Raiders' Austin Robbins recovered and ran the ball into the end zone from six yards out. Suddenly, the score was tied. The crowd of nearly 50,000 saw a 31-point Raider outburst in the second half. The Raiders overcame four turnovers by forcing five, picking up seven quarterback sacks, and rolling up 439 yards in total offense. Daryl Hobbs caught seven passes for 135 yards and a touchdown, and the Silver and Black celebrated with 48 unanswered points, 
and a big 48-17 victory. They took their 3-1 record on the road to face the 1-3 New York Jets on a nationally televised Sunday night contest. This game was never in doubt as the Raiders piled up 31 first-half points before the Jets even got a field goal. Ostetler threw for 261 yards and four touchdowns, two to Tim Brown, and the running game wore down the Jet defense, racking up 220 yards on the ground. Harvey Williams and Napoleon Kaufman each ended up with almost 100 yards rushing each on the day. In addition to forcing three turnovers, Mike Jones of the Raider defense scooped up a fumble and cashed in from 47 yards out for the final points of the day. The final score was Raiders 47, Jets 10. The team returned to Oakland to face Seattle, having outscored their previous two opponents by a margin of 95-27. to The offense continued to roll. Hostetler threw for 333 yards and two touchdowns, and running back Harvey Williams even threw a 13-yard touchdown pass to tight end Andrew Glover. When he wasn't doing that, he was grinding out 160 yards on 19 attempts, adding another touchdown to the offensive assault. The Seahawks were driving for a late touchdown to try to make the score a little more respectable, but Mike Jones intercepted near the Raiders' goal line. Ostetler came in, and the Raiders went into victory formation to close out the game. The big 34-14 win was the Raiders' third in a row. They were really rolling now and carried a 5-1 record into Denver to face the division rival Broncos on a Monday night. Usually, the bright lights of Monday night brought out the best in the silver and black, but on this night, they laid an egg. The Raiders gave up four field goals and two touchdown passes from John Elway to Anthony Miller, four turnovers and a paltry 169 yards in total offense including only 21 rushing yards, doomed the Raiders, who only had the ball on offense for a little over 23 minutes. To make matters worse, starting quarterback Jeff Hostetler went down to injury, another in a long list of injuries that plagued the team all year. The 27-0 beatdown was just a game they needed to flush out of their systems, so they came back home to face the Indianapolis Colts to try and right the ship before going into their bye week. And they did just that. Vince Evans got the start for the injured Hostetler, and he had a very good game against an overmatched defense. Evans threw for 335 yards and two touchdowns with one interception, and the Raiders produced just shy of 400 yards in total offense. This was just the elixir they needed to head into the bye with a big 30-17 win and upping their record to 6-2 with a week to rest. When they came out of the bye, Hostetler was back as the Raiders traveled to Cincinnati. The Haas was not spectacular, but he was efficient, going 17 of 30 for 178 yards and one touchdown, despite one interception, which was the only turnover for the Raiders all day, while forcing three Cincinnati turnovers in the process. Harvey Williams had a big day, running for 134 yards on 24 carries with a touchdown. He also caught three passes for an additional 28 yards. Tim Brown hauled in four passes for 67 yards and a score. Jeff Jager added a field goal in the fourth quarter. The Raider defense held the Bengals to just three field goals until they scored a touchdown late, aided by a penalty, to close the gap at the end to 20-17, but the Raiders had come away with another win on the road. The next week, they were on the road again, this time back in New York to take on the Giants. It was the team's fourth cross-country road trip in nine games. 71,000 fans made their way into the Meadowlands to watch Jeff Hostetler the same man who led the Giants to a Super Bowl victory just a few years earlier. 
now came out wearing silver and black. On the Raiders' first possession, Hostetler drove the team down the field and Jeff Jager kicked a field goal to put Oakland up 3-0. On the first play of the second quarter, Dave Brown was sacked by Raider linebacker Pat Swilling and Anthony Smith recovered the fumble. It was Oakland's 26th takeaway of the season. Three plays later, the Hoss hit Rocket Ismail with a 40-yard touchdown strike. But the Giants came back. Two field goals and a third-quarter touchdown gave the G-Men a 13-10 lead going into the fourth quarter. On the ensuing drive, the Raiders went on a long drive all the way down to the Giants' 10, but Hostetler threw an interception on the first play of the fourth quarter. After running a total of seven plays, the Giants had to punt the ball back to Oakland. The Raider offense took over at their own 29 and went right back down the field. This time, they cashed in, as Harvey Williams ran right for six yards and a touchdown. The extra point made the score 17-13. Starting at their own 23, the Giants tried to regain the lead. Converting one fourth down, they advanced as far as the Raider 28, but on another fourth down, they failed to convert. The Raiders took over and hung on for the win. They escaped New York, but the team boasted a record of 8-2. and two. Now, Although they were still behind Kansas City in the division by one game, they had to feel really good with where they stood. Then the Dallas Cowboys came to Oakland. With both teams sporting identical 8-2 and two records, Some thought this game might even be a Super Bowl preview. They were at least half right because the Cowboys would eventually go on to win the Super Bowl at the end of the year. Dallas jumped out to a 14-0 lead, then added a field goal after Harvey Williams scored on a touchdown that had closed the gap. Hostetler threw two touchdowns and had to be replaced by backup Vince Evans just before the end of the first half. In the second half, the Cowboys outscored the Raiders by three points but it was enough for a convincing 34-21 victory. Vince Evans was 21-40 of for 232 yards and two touchdowns. He actually outpassed Troy Aikman for the entire game, while only playing for one half. And they outgained the Cowboys by over 100 yards. But the three turnovers did them in, and they fell at home. Still, with a record of 8-3, the Raiders had confidence, with the Monday night game in San Diego coming up. In San Diego, it was truly an ugly game. Four Chargers field goals and two Raiders field goals, and that was it. In the third quarter, down 6-3, Vince Evans led the Raiders to the San Diego 20. Interception. After surrendering another field goal, the Raiders got the ball back, and Evans threw another interception on the second play of the drive. However, the defense held, resulting in no further points. Down 9-6 at his own 40. Vince Evans was hit and fumbled. The Chargers recovered and ended up with their final points on a field goal. The Raiders then failed on a fourth down on one drive, and Evans threw an interception at the end of the game, ending another. It was an ugly, ugly loss, and it dropped the Raiders to 8-4. and Then the Chiefs came to town. With a 10-2 record, KC was clearly the class of the division in 1995. But the Raiders could close to within a game and rewrite the ship with a big home win. However, they would have to do it without Hostetler. 40-year-old Vince Evans had to lead the way for Oakland. Terry McDaniel led things off with a 42-yard interception return for touchdown that put the Raiders up 7-0. Rich Gannon then came in for an injured Steve Bono and led the Chiefs on a successful drive, scoring the touchdown himself, but the extra point was missed. It was 7-6 Raiders. A 46-yard Jeff Jager field goal increased the lead to 10-6 for Oakland. But Kansas City started to assert itself. 
a Kimball Anders rushing touchdown toward the end of the first half gave the Chiefs a slight lead. The Raiders could have retaken the lead, but Jeff Jager missed a 48-yard field goal attempt. Then, in the third quarter, Marcus Allen ran for a touchdown, staking the visitors to a 19-10 lead. After a Raider fumble by Vince Evans, the Chiefs added another field goal. With a score 22-10, the wheels came off. Evans threw a pass that was intercepted and returned 74 yards for a touchdown. Evans was then replaced by Billy Joe Hobart after going 23 of 37 for 227 yards, throwing two interceptions, enduring four sacks, and fumbling the ball away twice. Hobart led the Raiders to a touchdown, coming on a 26-yard pass to James Jett. The two-point conversion attempt failed. Then when the Raiders got the ball back, Hobart led them into the end zone again, capped off by a one-yard pass to Tim Brown. The Raiders had closed to within six, but the Raiders failed to recover the onside kick, and that's where the game ended, with a 29-23 defeat and the Raiders' third loss in a row. To make matters worse, Al Davis and the Raiders had to witness Marcus Allen becoming the first back in NFL history to eclipse 10,000 yards rushing and 5,000 yards receiving, and he did it all on the Raiders' home field in those dreaded Kansas City colors. What hurt as much as the four turnovers was the fact that the Raiders only picked up eight rushing yards all day. With the season starting to slip away, the 8-5 and five Raiders could still win their last three games and get into the playoffs. The next test was against another good team, the 9-4 and four Steelers, who were preparing for Super Bowl run themselves. Pittsburgh jumped out to a 10-0 lead, but then the Raiders intercepted a Neil O'Donnell pass and took it one yard for a defensive score to close the gap. With Pittsburgh leading 10-7, the Steelers went on to outscore the Raiders 19-3 to take a commanding 29-10 victory. Billy Joe Hobart making his first career start through four interceptions, and the anemic Raider offense only gained 28 yards on the ground. They were now 8-6 with a four-game losing streak and two games left to play. The free fall continued the following week in Seattle. The Raiders managed to score a field goal in the first half and an 80-yard bomb for a touchdown from Billy Joe Hobart, who came on in relief of Jeff Hostetler. The Raiders controlled the clock, but Seattle scored touchdowns on drives of four plays, two plays, and then one play. Plus, they got a defensive touchdown. The 44-10 victory by the Seahawks, the Raiders' fifth straight defeat, had them in total meltdown mode with one game left against division rival Denver. Denver came in at 7-8. and eight. The Raiders were 8-7. and seven. Even if the Raiders had won, it was doubtful that Mike White would have been able to keep his job as head coach. The two teams battled to the end. The teams exchanged leads, and Oakland held a 28-20 advantage into the fourth quarter. With just 11 minutes left in regulation, Elway connected on a touchdown pass, then ran it in himself for the two-point conversion that tied the game. Then with the Raiders driving to try to win it in regulation, James Jett caught a pass and advanced to the Bronco 28, where he was hit and fumbled the ball. Elway then drove his team down the field, got them in position for a game-winning field goal, and Jason Elin converted on his 37-yard attempt with less than a minute left to win the game for Denver 31-28. The Raiders finished the season at 8-8, eight and eight, tied for last in the division. After such a promising start, Al Davis was highly upset by the results. After boasting that his team would dominate in the 90s, they were delivering no more than a whimper 
and only moderate resistance when it counted most. Key injuries at critical times and losing stretch that included contests against both eventual Super Bowl contestants, a Super Bowl team from the previous year, and their biggest divisional rival simply did them in. Now, all the owner could do was tear down, rebuild, and lament about what might have been. Team was back in Oakland now, so now what? Time to move on to 1996. I would like to thank Murray Olderman, Bruce Kebrick, and John Kingdon and their book Behind the Raider's Shield, ESPN, NBC, NFL Films, Pro Football Reference, Paul Gutierrez and Lincoln Kennedy and their book If These Walls Could Talk, and the 1995 Oakland Raiders Media Guide for information associated with this episode. This has been T3, your host. Raider Roots is produced by Heidi Stabbert in association with the Only Nation podcast. Be sure to check out all the episodes of Raider Roots by going to OnlyNationPod.com. Hit like, subscribe, and leave me your comments. You can also hit me up on Twitter at T3 underscore Sports 703. I look forward to jumping on with you again as we continue our journey through the history of the Silver and Black. Next time, we will look at the year 1996 and an Oakland Alameda Coliseum that was getting both a facelift and some proven new talent. Till then, Take care, everyone, and as always, go Raiders. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.